So what we've got today and is it Thursday we next meet um, is just an overview of the Bible and sexual morality. I'm not a scripture scholar. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to be a scripture scholar. All these notes are very secondhand, derivative, um, but it is important for us um, that various teaching documents of the church of the last half century have said moral theology needs to be renewed by being scriptural. So here at the start of the course, we're going to try and make sure we've got a scriptural foundation for what we're doing. And what, um, I remember the first time I reread these notes after having finished writing the whole course was just realizing how much everything we're going to say through the rest of the course does actually come right back to the key things that are in the Bible. So let's start uh, with a little mind map summary of what we're going to say today so on the Bible and sexuality. So the two key truths that are reiterated um, again and again in the scriptures in terms of what is sexuality about. It's about fertility and it's about unity and complementarity. going to notice how Genesis lays this out and so we'll hear the Lord Jesus um, you know talk about from the beginning it's very important as part of the whole vision that this is there from the very essence of what are we going to notice the prophets that they offer a covenantal model So that marriage is put as the model of God and his people. And what that means by implication is that marriage has great dignity and that marriage is about faithfulness. Yeah, so if you're going to choose something and to say, well, God is like this in how he relates to his people, that must mean that thing you're using as the model must be a thing of, of great dignity. We're going to briefly touch on how the wisdom literature, not just this upper rank with the, uh, the beauty of romantic love, and the exclusivity of love. And we'll also note that the Old Testament has, with respect to sexuality, um, 
many specific prohibitions and that those specific prohibitions actually teach us about, about sex meaning that sex has a special significance and in particular to repeat what I started at the top of that list there fertility is treasured So when we, with a modern mindset, um, look at the Bible, and you know, in our modern mindset, fertility is not treasured. Fertility, generally speaking, with respect to sex, is a thing we get around or manipulate, or um, you know, we wait until we're 45 to start having children, and then it becomes a thing that has to be uh, manipulated, uh, all kinds of artificial things thrown into it. Um, in contrast when we read the Bible fertility, fertility, fertility it's a good thing um, okay in green now some kind of doctrinal things that come out of this the three ends of marriage that we'll note in detail through this course um, the procreation an education of children, the union of the couple, and the least glorious but nonetheless important, a remedy for concupiscence. I'm going to note today and Thursday the issue, the difficulty of pitting the New Testament against the Old Testament with a few specifics so that um, polygamy goes from being something that is common, from being something that is forbidden, that remarriage and divorce likewise goes from something that is kind of taken for granted to being forbidden and then virginity being something that is praised in the New Testament whereas in the Old Testament if it's there at all it's a curse it's a problem you want to be married, you want to have children. Virginity is praised because it is about and a sign of union with God so this therefore is taking us back 
to this here. Marriage is a model of God and his chosen people. Then if we think what is directly on the lips of the Lord Jesus, um, that he tightens up sexual conduct. That we have lust of the heart and the eyes not just the body. We'll hear him directly praise celibacy and virginity. And St. Paul giving us the particular focus in many of his letters on the dignity of the body linked with the resurrection of the body And in the New Testament, the relationship between the Lord Jesus and the church uh, develops, completes, perfects the Old Testament image of the covenant um, between God and his people being portrayed in the image of marriage. Anything there you can't read? What are you struggling here with? Lust of the eyes, lust of the heart. Actually, it looks like lust of the beard, but it, it is lust of the heart, um, not just of the body. Yeah, that does look like eggs, not eyes. Remedy for concubiscence. 
union of the couple. Okay, so we've got 14 pages here to get through in two lectures. So if we can do seven pages a lecture, we're doing okay. Um, so feel free to interrupt me, make comments, observations. As I say, I'm not a scripture scholar. Um, some of the, I've tried to create um, a unity in these comments You'll notice occasionally sometimes I'm quoting scholars that actually do have a differing emphasis or perspective, but I'll kind of try and note that as we go through. Where, where else here, Christopher? Okay, so let's start on page one of the notes. So starting at the beginning with Genesis. So what is the key thing in Genesis? As I say there, unity and fertility, or we could say fertility and unity, um, that the Bible's portrayal of human sexuality starts in the context of the creation account. Then I have a little section noting to try, you know, the ancient Near East context. What's the broader context? Not just in the scriptures, but all around there. So note, Israel's monotheistic faith stands in contrast to the sexualized notions of gods and goddesses and the fertility rites associated with those gods and goddesses. The pagan myths of the ancient Near East civilizations portrayed the gods as having carnal sexual relations and to procreating. Human sexuality was seen as something mysterious, having an almost alien reality whose power could be appropriated through participation in cultic myth in these pagan religions. In contrast, the God of Genesis is not a procreator, but is creator. The Jewish and subsequently Christian understanding of human sexuality was developed in the context of monotheistic, monotheistic belief as in a transcendent creator God who did not have a sexual consort. And as I footnote uh, Collins saying, uh, in one way of expressing it, human sexuality is thus separate in the Jewish understanding. Human sexuality is thus separated from religious ritual and secularized as a consequence of monotheism. For the Jew, human sexuality was understood as an earthly human reality, a good reality, but an earthly one. Whereas almost in reverse, in another way of framing it, Israel's faith and her moral life were thus a unity. Moral life was a form of religious worship, but not the worship with the temple prostitutes. Do you understand the point he's trying to make there? This 
think secularizing sex so sex has a meaning in itself um, we're not not just by participating in what the gods are doing gods and goddesses are doing among themselves even though obviously at a broader level the scriptures tell us that we offer all our lives to God but not by participating in imitating them okay two truths stand out one fertility so fertility is a good new life is the heart of God's purpose in creation so just quoting a few lines there from Genesis let the earth put forth vegetation let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures let the earth bring forth living creatures God created humankind in his image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them God blessed them and he said to them be fruitful and multiply quoting Karl Peschke uh, the purpose of sexuality according to the first chapter of Genesis is the bearing of offspring the words express a mandate and a blessing so both a blessing doing it but also a command to do it so summarizing all that in the Old Testament fertility is a blessing for people have said already that's not how most people in 21st century America think of it Okay, page two, the second key thing in the Genesis account. Male-female unity and complementarity. So man and woman are made for each other. Again, quoting directly from Genesis. It is not good that man should be alone. Among the animals, for the man Adam, there was not found a helper as his partner. Not from the earth, but from man's own flesh is the woman created. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, Ishahal. For out of, her, out of man, Ish, this one is taken. Therefore man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. So this thing differentiating, separating to male and female. So see, man exists as sexually differentiated, this is a key point, by reason of the creator's plan. Um, quoting William May, through their sexuality, men and women image God in the world. Male and female humans are the image of God. So differentiation, different male, female, complementarity, the man and the woman are only complete together, they complement each other. Well, I quote there, um, again from this uh, author, kind of the last of the manualists, Peshke, human heterosexuality is the work of the creator. With that, woman is equal to man in dignity bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh not formed of the earth like the plants and animals 
And note the language, as I say, I'm not a scripture scholar, um, so I'm just drawing on what the scholars seem to agree on here. So that Adam is separated into Ish and Ishaha, separated into man and woman, i.e. Adam, not man, was the name of the original complete but lonely individual. So as we still use this translation and say Adam and Eve after the separation, beforehand Adam was used of this kind of unified alone individual, um, but then different words used to describe man and woman differentiated. And the significance of that is that man and woman are kind of not complete as man and woman, that they look to each other for completion. And that the celibate's heart, the loneliness in every celibate's heart is a sign of that yearning for completion that ultimately is only to be found in him. Then, Pulling out the details here further, sex and sexuality are thus very good. Sexuality is the work of God, therefore certainly good, even very good. So prior to the entrance of sin into the world, man and woman felt no shame in their nakedness. It's only after the fall that shame enters the world and the need to cover nakedness that the original sin disrupts all relationships, man to God, man to creation and work, so that it's by the sweat of your brow you will toil, man to woman, he will lord it over you. The equality of, between them has been disrupted. And notice a little aside there that the Jewish oral tradition um, contain, contains this concept of an evil inclination that's similar to concupiscence as we talk about it in Augustine and onwards in the Christian tradition. So that's kind of already there in the Jewish tradition. Um, so, yet in none of this is there any implication that sex per se has become evil or tainted, even with all that original sin has done. And the last point here on the kind of significance of the whole Genesis account really connects with a lot of John Paul II's analysis and catechesis on these texts, that man and woman are made for each other, made for self-gift. That sexuality is a divine gift that reveals to the person that he or she is made for living with and living for the other, culminating in the total gift of self. The solitude of Adam reveals that the person in his body is a being that carries within himself a profound need of living with others in relationship. So sexual differentiation leads to the recognition of this need and assists with this living with the other. Okay, before moving on then, so that's kind of summarizing Genesis, a number of points within there. Comments?
How many of you have done Ignostics Theology of the Body class? Two of you, okay. You, you were present? You, oh, okay, okay, right, right. Okay, so, you know, some key points here, that sexuality is part of God's plan, this, this complementarity, this differentiation is part of his plan, which is very different from just, well, it's a thing that, you know, is for whatever I want to do with it. That, no, God has a plan, and this is part of his plan for you. Okay, moving on, page three, I've got a one-page summary here of what the prophets do um, in terms of a very significant development of the presentation of marriage and married love in the scriptural development. So the prophetic development, the covenantal model of marriage. So this image gives great dignity to marriage and gives a model of faithfulness. Prophetic books add a new dimension to the Old Testament vision of marriage, namely covenant. God and his chosen people are in covenant with each other, married to each other. That God is the husband, initiator, provider, protector, Israel is the wife. And in a covenant, love and fidelity are demanded from both parties, from God and from Israel. And the prophets use this paradigm of marriage to describe the chosen people's relationship with the Lord. Fidelity, infidelity. You've done prophetic literature already? All of you? Yeah, okay. So you've gone through this in great depth in the prophets. Um, okay, two in particular, Hosea and Malachi. Hosea. So Hosea is the first prophet to use the marriage image to, d to portray the covenant. As uh, so you remember, Hosea married an adulterous wife named Goma, who should have been put to death for her crime of adultery, but whom Hosea forgave, brought back, and took back to himself. And Hosea's reaction to his unfaithful wife represents the response of the Lord to unfaithful Israel. That Hosea didn't divorce his wife or put her to death. He recognized that the Lord would never break his covenant with Israel, but would charm her and betroth her anew, thus showing authentic conjugal love. See, Hosea's action towards Goma reveals and makes real and representation the action of the Lord's unfading love to Israel. And I notice an aside, whether Gomer actually existed or was some form of prophetic parable is irrelevant to the teaching that this prophetic message conveys. Actually, lots of scripture scholars will say, oh, that never happened or whatever. In a sense, for our teaching purposes, that's irrelevant. It's clearly the Bible is teaching by means of this, whether it's a historical event or not. Prophet Malachi, I say, by the time of the later posted-exilic prophet Malachi, we find this drawn to its logical conclusion, that if marriage is modeled on the unbreakable relationship between God and his people, 
then divorce is contrary to God's vision of marriage. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel in Malachi. And then there is, I say, a foreshadowing of the New Testament, Christ and his church, that this vision of marriage will be taken up in a more profound way in the New Testament. Hosea's portrayal of marriage can be seen, therefore, as a veiled breakthrough of the New Testament idea of marriage. Okay, so all that one-page summary of the, the prophetic development of what the Bible says about marriage. Comments here? Meaning that God is someone we can do what we like with? Or rather, I, uh, my relationship with God is just, it's, it's not as, you know, if, if I can be unfaithful, if I can divorce in my relationship with this other person, uh, then how easy is it for me to just divorce my relationship with God? Because it's not... Uh, Or maybe if it's entirely up to me to decide what my relationship with God means, it's up to me to choose what my relationship with women means. This one, that one, the other. Other thoughts here? The key point that what the prophets are doing by using marriage as an image, as a model, changes in the scriptural narrative the significance of marriage. It makes marriage a very important, dignified thing if we're going to use marriage as the point of comparison with God and his people. So the original covenant of marriage, uh, Adam and Eve, is point out in scripture uh, in words. So do you think that uh, the prophets so you're saying that with Adam and Eve the word covenant isn't used yeah. yeah so yeah so I think therefore that it is a development it's a change that the prophets are are doing sorry Well, so if we think about development of doctrine, there is a change, but there's also a continuity. Yeah. What the prophets are doing here doesn't contradict Genesis, yeah. but it's also not really something that was obviously there in Genesis. 
it, it is a development of the tradition. The change being that in the Old Testament, Revelation isn't complete, so it is actually new things being added in that development, not just a deeper understanding of something that was already there. Whereas now today, if someone comes along and says, I've got a completely new understanding of this thing, uh, we call that heresy. Yeah. Uh, we can develop the understanding, we have development of doctrine, but you don't have new things. Whereas in the Old Testament, the change is appropriate. There are new things appearing in a line of continuity, in a line of development, but you do have new things coming along. Okay, page four. Uh, let's very briefly hear just a couple examples in the wisdom literature. As you know, the wisdom literature is a, a later period again in the development of the scriptures, a later period again of how God is gradually revealing teaching to his people. So in particular, wisdom literature and two model portrayals of love. So what does marriage look like? What does love look like? Well, the wisdom literature gives us in particular these two models of what it looks like. So we have Tobias and Sarah, a model couple. So you know in, in uh, lots of weddings, the, they'll choose the, the text from the book of Tobit. Um, so the book of Tobit gives us a portrayal of a model couple, Tobias and Sarah. So what do they portray? Well, they have romantic desire. They have a mutual love. They have a mutual help to each other in their trials. They have a desire for children. They have temperance with respect to sexuality. So for example, they wait before having sex. They have a prayerful disposition, praying for their marriage, praying before sex. And an align that's you know, often lovingly used in the marriage uh, services, a desire to grow old together which indicates the good of indissolubility. So, so here in the post-exilic period, at the end of the New Testament development of the notion of marriage, the text takes us back to the beginning. So Tobias's prayer explicitly re references Genesis, saying, You, O God of our ancestors, said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Let us make a helper for him, like himself. Second model in the wisdom literature is the Song of Songs, which um, we can summarize as a scriptural celebration of sex. So the Song of Songs, also called the Song of Solomon, is uh, a long erotic text describing the longing of two lovers for each other. For example, the, woman, the man describes the woman's breasts with delight, not with embarrassment. I note that possibly no book in the Bible is subject to such dramatic and conflicting interpretations as the Song of Songs. That some interpret it symbolically, referring to the love of Christ and his church, of God and Israel. That many mystics have elaborated on this book, so 
St. Bernard of Clavaux, St. John of the Cross, um, at great length elaborate on the symbolism in here. But they interpret it symbolically. Others interpret it literally as a celebration of the goodness of sex. And I say regardless of whether it's symbolic or literal, it's impossible to interpret this text in a puritanical or Jansenistic manner. Even if the text is an allegory, it must be referring to something good, something worthy of being compared to God's love for his bride. So sex is good, desire is appropriate, love per se is exalted, not just marriage or procreation. Nonetheless, this love, romantic love, leads to marriage and leads to a union that is exclusive and permanent. You've been through different interpretations of the Song of Songs. I don't know which course that would be in. Is it? Okay. We've heard of this notion that some take it symbolically, some take it literally. And some of the saints actually get quite worked up at the thought of interpreting it literally. That it's not literal. It's a symbol of, of God and, 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 and love and you shouldn't be taking it literally. Um, with all due respect to those saints who are better people than me, but uh, I think the commentators, are, I think it's pretty obvious that it was literally intended in its first writing. Um, but regardless, even if it was intended symbolically, to use this as a symbol as saying sexual love is a good thing. So to be a Puritan and to be embarrassed about enjoying yourself, that doesn't fit with using this as a model of how God relates to the soul. Any comments on these points? Well, that you can't really interpret it puritanically. Well, so, so Puritans, Jansenists, both um, have a problem with pleasure. Yeah, in, in that sense. Uh, so Americans are very influenced in your culture by Puritans. Why is it that in America alcohol is illegal until the age of 21, even though that's not true anywhere else in the world. Um, th this influence of Puritanism. Um, within the Catholic Church, recent centuries, Jansenism has been more than Puritanism, the influence. Jansenists, if you remember, just this among various things in the context of moral theology, the issue being the difficulty they see with pleasure. Uh, and that the passions, so that the world is a fallen, dark thing. Um, if you're enjoying yourself, that's a problem. Um, and many 
Irish Catholics, you know, the Irish were a great gift to the church in many ways, but um, because the Irish weren't allowed to have priests in Ireland, no seminaries were allowed in Ireland um, because of the wicked British. Um, so they had to go and train in France, and in France the heresy of Jansenism was dominating many of their seminaries. They took that heresy back to Ireland, and then the Irish spread it across much of the world. And what that heresy means in the context of moral theology is just a notion of being uncomfortable about enjoying pleasure. And so you see it, I think, in part, um, those cultures when the Catholic engagement with pleasure is either huge excess and sin, because I'm just not thinking about God right now, so I'm going to get blind drunk or I'm going to do whatever in the bedroom, uh, or uh, a very restrained, uh, I'm thinking of God now so I can't really be enjoying myself. The Latin Catholic cultures just don't have that at all, because they don't have any residue of Jansenism there. Um, so that enjoying yourself and God are not problematic to go together. The only question is moderation and, and the right mean, the right balance of quantity and context. Is what I'm saying resonating? I'm going to come back to this again and again when we look at virtue and we look at pleasure and we look at the passions. Uh, but this background issue of Jansenism and its influence in the moral life, Jansenism and its interest in sexual morality within the church has been a big thing. And it's one of the reasons that John Paul II's vision of sex and the body the theology of the body uh, is so important and so different because in Poland there just was none of that residue of Jansenism over there. Okay, but that's the kind of thing, if there's a thing I'm saying there and you're saying, uh, what do you mean there? Ask me. Okay, page five. Um, so just outlining here just some specifics, some specific sexual prohibitions in the Old Testament. And I'm running through these to indicate that behind all of these, there's a vision of what sex is about in these don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. So specific sexual prohibitions in the Old Testament. So listing some specific sexual practices that the Old Testament condemns highlights the significance and meaning of sexuality. That sex is very important, thus the related penalties are severe, frequently capital punishment. Uh, sexual activity is for a husband and a wife and for fertility. So adultery. Adultery, you know, only Ten Commandments, one of them dedicated adultery, strictly forbidden. Incest, I say incest was strictly prohibited and severely punished, resulting in banishment even down to the tenth generation. Um, and I know, as an aside there, that incest was also prohibited in 
in most cultures and civilizations. Um, bestiality, having sex with an animal. This is a capital crime. Um, now I say such activity could never lead to procreation and was thus consequently forbidden. And it's also absolutely foreign to the understanding of human sexuality as a social institution in the Old Testament. Genesis 2.20 recalls that man could not find a suitable partner for himself among the animals. Yeah, so the, this thing about bestiality is saying something about what sex is for. Procreation, social human, um, not just about a release of pleasure. Homosexual activity, likewise, uh, condemned as severely as bestiality. So Leviticus 20.13 refers to homosexual activity as an abomination requiring death. Sodomy, um, I say, you know, where does the word sodomy come from? Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I say, despite anal sexual intercourse receiving its name from the account of what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, Recent scholars debate whether the sin of Sodom refers to homosexual activity or whether it refers to rape, lack of hospitality, or an attempt to gain sexual power and dominance over others. So I have read scripture scholars seriously trying to argue that the, what was wrong at Sodom was a lack of hospitality and that in the ancient Near East, hospitality was a very important thing um, it just seems to be avoiding the obvious when you read that whole text. There was something quite specific in the form of inhospitality going on there. And that raining down fire and brimstone from heaven um, wasn't, was about something more significant than inhospitality. Um, so, homosexuality likewise condemned in the Old Testament but because there's something that sex is about that homosexual activity just does not match up with. Onanism or masturbation um, likewise was condemned as sinful. Uh, Michael could you read that passage to us? Uh, then Judah. That's a pretty big deal. God puts him to death for failing to do this. Um, I say onanism has traditionally been interpreted by Christians as the sin of masturbation. Some scholars tie it more directly with contraception. Um, I think it's reasonable to say actually those two things seem to both be being condemned in this passage. Um, but usually when onanism is referred to like particularly the preconciliar manuals when they refer to onanism or the sin of onan, it's, it's masturbation that they're referring to. The spilling of the seed, um, 
outside of sex. Okay, over the page, page six. Contraception. I say, while not explicit, uh, the biblical prohibition of contraceptive practices can be inferred from various texts. Um, the argument you'll sometimes hear that Jews allowed contraception or must have allowed it because the Old Testament texts are not explicit on this point is merely an argument from silence. and becomes difficult to substantiate when you consider the very high value placed on children and the great stigma of barrenness in Jewish society. So I note that the Catholic tradition and in fact all Christians from the early church until the Lambeth Conference 1930, so early 20th century, um, has never approved contraceptive practices. So it's in the Jew that prohibition's in the Jewish oral tradition, whether or not you can say it's directly there in the Old Testament texts themselves. Abortion, I said, with respect to abortion, the Old Testament does say very little. There's only a passing reference to abortion in Exodus, which requires compensation for a spontaneous abortion resulting from harm done to a woman. While the text does not indicate equivalence between maternal and fetal loss, the text does indicate that the loss of the unborn child was a loss. Here again, the argument from silence becomes difficult to sustain. So, it Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't put infanticide on this list, but you're right, it does pretty obviously fit there. Um, and I think for us more broadly, it's the Jewish oral tradition that ends up determining the Christian tradition and the Jewish oral tradition would have been what our Lord Jesus is making reference to in various things in his teaching. Um, but I think, you know, because we're not fundamentalists, we don't need to have a Bible verse to pluck out for every single thing. Um, Abortion, contraception, we can't find a single Bible verse to pluck in a proof text kind of manner. But the, the broad picture here, and when you add all these prohibitions together, the broad picture is very obvious. Um, the broad picture means these things are all forbidden and aren't practiced by the Jews of our Lord's time. So when the Jews are going out among the the Greeks and making converts among the Greeks, these would be the things the Jews were living as a different way of life from the Greek culture in the Roman Empire. Okay, last specific note here in terms of specifics within the Old Testament narrative, virginity. So the command to be fruitful and multiply was one of the 613 laws that must be kept by a Jew. The high regard for fertility in marriage meant that consecrated virginity 
just has no place in Old Testament life. Do you all remember the account where Jephthah's daughter mourned her virginity, knowing she would die as a virgin? That was a bad thing. She was going to die childless, die... Yeah, that, that lack of fertility was a really bad thing. And so in that whole vision, virginity is not a great thing. Or it's only a good thing as something you're waiting for marriage. But if you don't get that far, then you've had a kind of failed life. So note that the early Old Testament had no explicit belief in life after death. Thus immortality was only assured by having children. Christ's promise of the resurrection radically transforms this. And note that Christian celibacy remains a puzzle to many Jews today. Then I, I note a couple of sides here. So the Essenes, you know, and the Dead Sea Scrolls and everything, they may have practiced celibacy, um, but if so, they stand as a counter example to everything else. They'd be kind of the exception that proves the rule that for Jews, celibacy is not a thing. Jeremiah and John the Baptist stand out as unusual unmarried Old Testament figures. Uh, and John, Jeremiah uh, was celibate, but his celibacy was meant to express something negative about Israel's future. Did you have that image of him portrayed to you in your prophetic course with Father Wagner? Okay, um, and it's not explicit in the book of Jeremiah, but I, I've heard it taken as symbolic. So it's just in the Old Testament, weirdly unusual to have a kind of a, um, a big important person who is celibate, that Jeremiah, who was this figure pronouncing doom on the people, his own sterility, is, is a sign of that, of what awaits the people. Yeah? So, um, with the whole, like, the goodness of sex portrayed in the Old Testament, um, why then would you have to abstain from sex before going to fight or the priest offer sacrifice? I mean, because like that makes sense with virginity, but it doesn't quite make sense then if it's seen as something that's really good. Like there's a little bit of a contradiction. Depending why they're abstaining. Um, so if you're abstaining from sex because sex is bad, then it's problematic. If you're abstaining from sex because it distracts you, the broader meaning in our Christian understanding of what purity is about, um, then it's not problematic. And that's something where the Old Testament text doesn't say why. So those examples you give, abstaining from sex before battle, um, abstaining from sex while on the, the, the battle campaign, 
um, the priests abstaining from sex before offering sacrifice in the temple. If sex is a good thing, but a thing with the passions that can distract you from this important thing you're about to do, then it's purity in the sense of being focused, not purity in the sense of being undefiled. That would be my reading of that. You get something similar in how celibacy is understood in um, the, apostolic, um, the apostolic practice of clerical continence. So we see very early on these accounts, these descriptions of the priest being celibate in order to approach the altar. That doesn't need to mean because sex is bad, but because he needs a focus, a purity in that sense for what he's about to do. I'm connecting different things there that I've not had a read a scripture scholar explicitly comment on, but that would be my take on it. And then you get the weirdness in the some of the Orthodox churches where the priest can be married, but he has to abstain from sex for three days before offering Mass. Um, so they've kind of got a vision of, of something of celibacy in the altar, um, but that's part of why they don't have daily Mass. Um, any other? thoughts here on the Old Testament so all those pages I'm giving you an overview what does the Old Testament teach us about sexuality um, and it teaches us a lot it doesn't have the book on sex within the canon of the Old Testament um, but it's something referred to a lot referred to, if you remember more broadly what we were thinking about in our last lecture, a very different vision of sexuality and marriage and love from what the, the pagan religions around them had. Where did they get that notion? Somehow God was forming his people, inspiring his people, teaching through his prophets in particular, a different vision of what sex, sexuality, man, woman, children are about. That's kind of the next thing I'm going to talk about. Um, but basically, it seems to disappear sometime in the prophetic period. Um, so you've got to go back to the, the patriarch. So Solomon is, I think, the last figure we'd point to where big numbers of wives are being indicated. Okay, that is taking us on to um, my next point, which I won't probably conclude today, um, the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. So, say two to so page seven here. Two problematic issues with the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And the question I put at the top of the page is, how can a practice be permitted under the Old Testament 
and then be forbidden in the new. I say three substantial issues relating to sex and marriage present themselves. Polygamy, concubinage, and remarriage after divorce. In each case, the practice is tolerated under the old, but not endorsed or explicitly permitted. The practice is then forbidden under the new. And I say, God reveals himself and his truth gradually and his fullness only in, the, the phrase from Galatians, in the fullness of time. But how do we make sense of that? Um, so I've got a couple pages here in which I'm trying to model out different ways of approaching this, um, but trying to be coherent in this. But the problem it, we all see, yes, this is a problem. How do we make sense of that? And then when at mass and whatever, we have these texts being read out um, and the hundreds of wives of Solomon and um, yeah. And you're saying I can't have a second wife, you know? Um, okay, point A here, the general point, before we look at some specific approaches by different scholars, the general point, revelation is gradual. So when we learn, when we teach, we learn in stages. We cannot learn a more complex truth until we learn more simple ones. You cannot learn calculus until you've learned algebra. You cannot impart knowledge to someone who's not prepared to receive it. Then say in bold, keep point here, if you impart knowledge to someone unprepared, then they receive it differently from how you imparted it. Quoting St. Thomas, whatever is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. Yet, so you tell a child something that they're not ready to receive, and what they receive in a sense is all wrong. They don't grasp the point you're trying to make. That you tell them something about flowers and they learn something about yellow. Um, that they're not ready yet. It's received according to the mode of the receiver. So teaching is gradual, learning is gradual. I say a good teacher teaches developmentally without ever lying in earlier simplifications. I remember when I learned science in school, when we were taught physics, there were various simplifications that were made when we were 14, that when we were 16, they told us, well, what we told you about um, protons and electrons actually wasn't quite the case, that actually it's only the electrons that move um, and they presented it to us as if both positive flow and negative flow happen but actually that isn't actually what happens it, but they simplified it for the 14 year olds and then told us at 16 what was really the case better teachers find a way of in order to maintain their credibility because when you learn that a teacher lied to you you're next thinking well what else is he lying to me about yeah the best teachers never lie, but they teach you gradually. In bold, God is the best of teachers. And scripture traces how he taught gradually, never lying. Two examples, one, the resurrection of the body. 
So an afterlife is not explicit in the early and Old Testament. In Hades, the underworld, this is not really a very desirable place in just the illusions we find in many of the Psalms. But by the time of Maccabees, it's become clear, become definite, become the reward of the righteous, um, become a, a glorious thing. You know, as those Maccabees are waiting to have their arms and limbs chopped off, they're looking ahead to something glorious. They're not looking to some dark, vague netherworld. There's a clear development in the tradition that's happened there. Two, polygamy and having con concubines. So these were practiced by the early Jewish figures, but the line of development of Old Testament revelation had come to exclude polygamy and concubines before the completion of the Old Testament. So even before the fullness of revelation in Christ, these two practices are nowhere to be found in the Jewish living um, that the Lord Jesus is engaging with. So something gradual, something developmental, but something definite happening in what God is revealing to his people. Questions, comments here on kind of the, the big picture that I'm starting with here? You've done all this in fundamental, moral the fundamental theology? What do you call it in here? Revelation, what do you think? Was this particular example looked at? Because it's a big deal, really. Yeah. Okay. I've heard the concept of that God gradually revealing in some of the all the practices follow these examples of gradual learning and resurrection. Um, and that would probably be something fundamental as Dr. Ignosic or Dr. Cahal? Okay. Um, yeah, we definitely didn't look, about this, look into this in any sort of moral theology. Or even. The Old Testament, the Gospels, and just Right, right. So it's a good thing I'm doing it now. Um, on one level, it is outside my level of expertise. I've got the ex explicit knowledge about the ethical questions implicit there the process of God in some sense changing what he's saying that's actually a question of fundamental theology uh, and is a big issue I'm going to outline here for you and we'll come back to it on Thursday a couple different ways of approaching it so I'm going to close today just with the bottom bit of page 7 so B I'm going through three possible explanations how we make sense of the change on polygamy and concubinage. So school of thought one says the Old Testament actually never actually permitted these practices. So scripture scholars like Scott Hahn and Jeff Cavins follow what they call a narrative interpretation of scripture. 
which means we only understand the whole Bible by reading it as a whole, seeing the place and significance of individual events within the timeline. Have any of you done Jeff Caven's Bible Timeline courses? I would say when you become pastors, I used them in both parishes as a pastor, they were by far the best attended, most significant things I did in those parishes. Um, I would strongly encourage you to do them, in part because people just don't understand the Old Testament. It gives them a, a bit of a vision of how things connect to know whether Moses came before or after King David and why. Um, okay, next bullet point. When scripture teaches, it usually teaches by narrative rather than by explicit statement. For example, someone does something evil and bad consequences follow. That's the narrative way of teaching. You have a narrative that shows they did something bad and it was bad. Therefore, don't do something bad. Yeah? But it never actually says in the text, do not do this. It just gives you a narrative that in a culture that learns by narrative, that's how you learn. Okay, then give some examples here. In this analysis, when the Bible narrates cases of polygamy and having concubines, it is either obviously linked to greed and lust or shown to be wrong by its consequences. So a few examples here. Abraham, he had one wife, Sarah, the mother of Isaac, and one concubine, Hagar, the mother of Ishmael. Now the perpetual enmity between the Jews and the Arabs traces its roots to being competing descendants of these two rivals. Now, if you know that, and if you were growing up in the ancient Near East, you would have been knowing that all around you, then you wouldn't need to have somebody to spell out for you it was a real problem that Abraham got a wife, uh, got children by two different women. So there's a teaching by narrative saying it was a bad thing, don't do it. Yes, Abraham was the father of our nation. Yes, Abraham was chosen by God, but this was something he did that had bad consequences. Don't do it. Jacob, two wives, two concubines. So the rivalry between his 12 sons, which, you know, you don't need to go through that narrative in great detail to see multiple different rivalries there. That rivalry led them to sell Joseph as a slave. Gideon. Gideon had many wives. Again, Gideon, great figure in the Old Testament, great guy. But he had many wives, and his son Abilamech killed all 70 of his brothers. The enmity, the jealousy that cause, comes from having multiple wives has this bad consequence. Don't do it. King David, at least seven wives. King Solomon, 700 wives and 300 concubines. You know, the mind boggles. Um, but David and Solomon are both referred to as having been led astray by their lust. What was the downfall of either of them? Their lust. Um, so the fact that they are blessed with many things and they have many wives 
doesn't mean that the narrative is showing you nonetheless it wasn't good. Okay, broadly speaking, this notion of teaching by narrative, does that make sense what they are trying to say? And they're further claiming that each of those passages is actually, when you look at the detail, teaching you not to do this, rather than teaching you it's okay to have 700 wives. It would, but how you go about that. Right. Interestingly, inter the clarity for them to say, yes, it's good to have multiple, to have many children, but this goes too far. Like, they take on multiple wives. Or the way they're doing it right. isn't, isn't helpful. Interestingly, that's going to be the foundation of what St. Thomas argues um, for why there's an exception permitting these individuals to have multiple wives but that's a different approach so we're going to continue this whole problematic issue in our next lecture we're looking today at an overview what does the bible say about sexuality actually it says a lot and a lot that will find its completion in what the lord jesus is going to say but actually what jesus says is fairly brief unless you understand him in the context of everything else that's going on in the Old Testament.